Welcome back to Knowing Nature, a podcast about environmental education. This show is all about sharing experiences, perspectives, and practices for helping people to connect with the natural world. In this episode, I'll be speaking with an educator in Cordova, Alaska, about environmental education and outreach in communities which are often dependent on resource extraction or industries like fishing. Cordova is a city on Prince William Sound, near the mouth of the Copper River in Alaska. Cordova is a city on Prince William Sound, near the mouth of the Copper River in Alaska. It's home to around 2,600 people, and it's also one of the communities which was most affected by the Exxon Valdez oil spill disaster in 1989. Then, as now, most households in the community have at least one person involved in the fishing industry. Of the species monitored in the sound, 24 species were identified as being injured because of the spill. Today, 19 are considered recovered or likely recovered. However, some seabirds, like the marbled murrelet, and once economically important species like herring, still have not recovered. Some orcopods in the region are not likely to ever recover, and oil still lingers just below the surface sediments in some areas. Something else which emerged from the oil spill is that Cordova is now home to the Prince William Sound Science Center, a non-profit research institution which monitors the wildlife and ecosystems of the sound. It tracks the lingering impacts of the oil spill and studies sustainable use of the area's resources. It's also an educational institution which uses an innovative combination of formal and informal education programs to inspire lifelong passion for science and raise a society of scientifically and ecologically literate citizens who are prepared to promote strong economies based on the sustainable use of renewable resources. And it's an educator from this institution we shall be speaking with today. If at the end of the episode you want to learn more about the Cordova community, keep listening for a few minutes of extra content where I speak with Lauren about Iceworm Festival. On with the show. Joining me today is Lauren Bine, Education Director of the Prince William Sound Science Center. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to be here and to talk with you. Yeah, I'm glad we could make this work because we're, we're now many time zones apart, but I, I came across the Science Center after visiting Cordova for a couple of days, and it's, it's a great little community. Cordova is not connected to the rest of Alaska by any roads, so you must get there by either the ferry system or by a plain. So it must be an interesting community to live in. Does it feel sometimes a bit cut off? Yes, it can feel secluded, remote, rural. Um, cut off is a good word. You know, it's it's not an island. We are on the mainland of Alaska. But just like you said, because our road system does not connect to the road system in Alaska, uh, we we have to get really creative in the way that we travel in the way that we get items to our homes, to our businesses. And um, yeah, we don't have, you know, you can't run out and pop over to the clothing store to get something. So yeah, it can feel kind of cut off, isolated at times. But it's also because of that, uh, that there's a really strong sense of community here that I think is unique to our situation. It's always nice to get to know the guests a little bit. So um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got interested in nature and, and ended up in environmental education? It was not a straightforward shot, we'll say that. So I'm originally from Ohio. Your first question about like, how did I get interested in nature? I, you know, I, I don't know if there's kind of a, a pinpointable aha moment, rather just it's who I was or, you know, what my family was interested in. I was just kind of like a wild, dirty kid, I think, (laughs) and spent most of the time outside playing around in our yard or playing in the woods behind our house and just always really interested in being outside. And then as I got older, I kind of just became a summer camp kid and would go to either the Cincinnati Public Park nature camps, or when I got older, started going to overnight camps and then started working at those camps. Um, And I think that's kind of what kicked off my interest in working with kids. Went to college. I originally, weirdly, was started as a math major and really (laughs) found that math was not for me at a higher level and switched to education. 
and knew that I wanted to be teaching, but I wanted to be teaching science. And so then <laughs> switched to becoming a biology major with a marine biology minor. Absolutely loved that. Fell in love with marine invertebrates in my time in undergrad. And then took some time off, and I was an AmeriCorps service member in Nevada, again, far away from the ocean. And then a, um, a Sea Grant intern at the University of Georgia in Savannah at the Marine Education Center and Aquarium down there. Fell back in love with the ocean, did some grad school work at the University of New England in Maine, which is where I was before coming to here to Cordova to work for the Prince William Sound Science Center. And I think what really drew me here was just this combination of marine science and education and kind of that outdoor leadership and connection to sense of place and sense of community. I was reading up on the Science Center on the website, and it talked about how there were plans for the for some kind of science or research institution before the spill happened. But then the spill happened. And suddenly it became much more pressing to have some institution to look at what was going on in the sound. Can you tell me anything about that early bit of the Science Center's history? Yeah, I mean, exactly like you said, there were community conversations in Cordova. Now, let me first state that the, the spill happened in 89 and I was born in 89. So this is well before my time and I'll do my best to, to represent what was going on. Um, but yes, the, the conversations had started within the community. It was, you know, between community leaders, local commercial fishermen, scientists, and they were concerned about the potential for a spill in, in Prince William Sound. You know, we, we are situated just east of the Valdez Arm, where the the tankers are leaving kind of the terminal of the Valdez pipeline and and heading out through the sound. And so there there was concern about spill and there was a a, a recognition of a need to know what was going on in the sound with the ecosystems, with the populations, with everything. Um, and so there was this talk about creating and designing a local science center that would focus on on those questions and look for that. And then, like you said, in in 89, when the spill happened in March, it spurred that conversation along a lot further with, okay, we were right. But now, unfortunately, instead of being preemptive, we're going to have to be a little reactive here. And so, yep, that's the, the Prince William Sound Science Center was founded. And yes, yeah, so there was a lot of response to the spill and long-term research and monitoring that was established to know where we are, where our populations stand in the sound. It also sounds like you guys would have a really, you'd have deep roots in the community, like a lot of community support. Because I know sometimes when you get an institution that suddenly pops up and suddenly it's got lots of external funding, it can feel like a local community can really feel like, oh, there's all these people coming in to tell us how to live our lives and what to do. But that, that again, doesn't sound like that's the case for um, Prince William Sound Science Center. We are deeply, deeply rooted into the community. Um, you know, not not just by the fact that we were founded by community members, but by the work that we do. Um, most of our work is long-term research and monitoring. And so we are really interested in the health of our ecosystem. And we recognize that, like you said, Cordova is heavily reliant on salmon. That is our, our primary industry. And, you, you know, you can't have a thriving economy without a healthy, thriving ecosystem. And so that I think that's one of the things we, we try to, to instill um, in our research and then also in the education. And we have one program that has been happening with the local school district since the early 90s, and it's called Discovery Room. And so we work with every grade, um, or we try to work with every grade at least once a month throughout their entire elementary school time. And so you have, I mean, there are students now that have been having Discovery Room for six years. And then there are people that are my age in the community that say, oh, I remember Discovery Room. And, you know, they have these really fond memories of working with the Discovery Room and working with the Science Center and have that connection with us as well. 
Yeah, that's so powerful when you have a a program like that that has that connection with the community because you, as you said, you end up with kids who grow up with that program being a part of their lives. And then when they're adults, suddenly they really value it. So I guess let's jump over into the education programs that you do. What's the most popular program that you have on offer? You know, with this discovery room, so like you mentioned, Cordova is really small. We have a year-round population of around 2,500, and we therefore only have one school district and are lucky, really, really fortunate to have a, a good long-standing relationship with the school district. And so that that lets us uh, get into a lot of the classrooms and work with all of the students. So the program I just mentioned, Discovery Room, is, you know, every student that goes through Cordova School District has participated in that. We also hold community programs in the summertime, we call them Discover Cordova. And those are usually for our our youngest learners, you know, two to four-year-olds that come with their families. And those can focus on a theme like tide pooling or investigating tracks. And they come with their families and we lead a, a guided investigation. And during the school year, we we do that with preschoolers as well. And it's called Sea Squirts. And they get to come and um, do some hands-on science activity. And then we also connect that with literature as well and read a story about science. With those Discover Cordova and the Sea Squirts programs, are they drop-in type programs or are they ones that are, there's a set start time and then the program is going to happen within a a certain... They're usually drop-in programs. Um, You know, sometimes we might have a beginning activity, but if a family misses that, we're happy to repeat it or to kind of incorporate it in in a different way by just working one-on-one with a family that might get there. Most of our open community programs are drop-in programs. Will they run all day or is it like hour blocks? Depends again on the topic, but usually they're about an hour to two hours. Um, and they're, they'll center around like good timing as far as the tides, if we want to hit low tide or if there's fresh snowfall and we want to go check out some tracks that have been laid. Um, and so they're usually dependent and can often um, pop up as opportunities arise, which is another really nice thing about being in such a small community. Advertising for our events can travel really quickly through Facebook or even word of mouth. Um, and we can we can decide things like that very easily and quickly and still get a good turnout. Yeah, that kind of flexibility must be so lovely because <laughs> um, when you work with nature and around animals and whatnot, you know, you're at the mercy of whatever nature is going to throw at you at that time. It's not always predictable, um, which is a challenge that I faced where I'm like, oh, great, I have to run this program for yeah, every day this week because that's what we've advertised and I can't really be flexible, but the weather's not cooperating. And that might mean that this animal that we were meant to focus on is just not out, <laughs> but there's not much I can do about it. Which is why I think um, people that work in environmental education are just incredible in their way of, like you said, okay, this animal isn't here, but I'm still going to roll with it. You know, how can I, you know, use the topic, but do this program without that animal even being present? A lot of environmental educators are just like some of the most magical people in that way. <laughs> like, uh, a phrase I've learned from a, a partner who does environmental education with me is plan tight and facilitate loose, right? You might have the best laid out plan minute by minute of how you want things to go and that will never happen, but you're okay with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. I love that. Plan tight, facilitate loose is a great motto. Could you walk me through like what might one of these um, sessions look like? You, you mentioned that you might uh, you might have a starting activity and then you might end with a story. Could you walk me through one of these C-Squirt sessions? We've done all sorts of topics with C-Squirts. Um, one of the really fun ones we like to start with is kitchen chemistry. Um, and so we have For that one, we'll read a book, uh, What is a Scientist? And it just goes into, you know, a scientist asks questions, a scientist has fun, um, a scientist takes notes, um, and kind of just to get their brains on track with what we're going to do. And then usually, since families are invited to these, there are stations that we have set up around the room, and then we'll just kind of facilitate the learning. Um, And so with kitchen chemistry, we might have... um, 
like snow globe in a glass where we have instructions printed out and we're there to help, but the parents are also highly encouraged to be involved and, you know, mixing some stuff. We can make little tiny, um, it's called elephant toothpaste. And then not only the instructions, but we'll also have a little sign with what's going on, what they're seeing. Um, and then we'll um, come together at the end if they're, if students are ready to step away from elephant toothpaste <laughs> um, and just kind of hear what, what, the, what they've learned, what they saw, what they smelled, what they heard. Um, you know, mostly I think what we do when we're facilitating these experiences, just ask questions. And it's just such a, a good way to engage with anyone that you're in a program with. And, and rather than teaching, and we certainly do have programs where we are instructing, um, but our C-squirts are more about facilitating exploration and facilitating asking questions and then encouraging that curiosity. And kitchen chemistry is a really good one because then they can go home and do all of those experiments again. Yeah, which often they want to do, or maybe not <laughs> all the time, but you know, it's very often they'll be like, I really want to do this thing again. And then they'll mm -hmm. come back to it over and over, which is great because that's how kids learn is through that repetition. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you do that little wrap up. Do you do, you do those wrap up conversations with um, the whole group or will it be with an individual participant when they're ready to move on or to, to leave? That's a good question. And again, there's that flexibility and we never know how many people we're going to get, or we never know if top time was also scheduled at the same time and pe people are going to leave right in the middle of our program. And so we, we have that flexibility and we like to schedule the wrap up for the whole group, but we'll also try to catch families as they leave and just kind of have a one-on-one -on -one check in with, with kids if they're leaving early. That's a nice way to do it, to have that scheduled kind of wrap up time. We used to do pond dipping sessions and it had that similar format when it was purely drop in and we didn't have the, a more scheduled beginning and end bit. People would just leave. They would return the equipment and leave. But it was much nicer to have that kind of final wrap up. What did you all see? People can talk to each other then. Um, otherwise, it can become a very individual thing. And it's nice to have that moment of the whole group you know, listening to what other people did and shared, and then they can sort of continue those conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, they learn from each other and I learn from them too of something I might not have noticed or a point that I've never made before, but I, I hear from a, a three-year-old something they, you know, this reminded me of, and I've never thought of it that way. So I, I just love to hear what they have to say afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is your favorite program to run? I love our summer camp programs. I think there is just something so special about being at summer camp. You um, are free, you know, you're, you're not in school and you're in a different setting. And, and I think that's really important too, because we are such a small community that, that in school, a lot of these students have known each other their whole lives. And so they have these relationships built or even an entire class of students can have a personality. Whereas at summer camp, we mix up the ages a little bit or just enough that they might not be with their best bud, but they're with someone from their class that they maybe haven't hung out with before. And it's just so different to to be outside. And we we do have 36 miles of road heading out. And so we get to explore the rainforest or go to a glacier or, um, you know, canoe through the wetlands. And to, to learn from the kids, a lot of them have lived here longer than I have. And to learn a little bit about the ecosystems from their perspective or how their family might harvest animals on the land or might, um, we might be visiting one of their favorite fishing spots and to learn from that. But, but summer camp is just so freeing. And for for leading summer camp, it's really life-giving, right? Um, being in a small community has its challenges as well in that when I talk about camp staff, again, it's just two of us. And so we are the, the camp leaders, we are the camp cooks and the camp nurses. And, you know, if we're doing overweight camp, you know, like kind of the sounding board for everything that these campers are going through. And and so it's it's exhausting and um, stressful at times, but absolutely life giving when you see campers come together and solve problems or be put outside of their comfort zone and really grow and change throughout that experience. So I I love summer camp, <laughs> but I also 
I love, I'm the coach for the National Ocean Sciences Bowl team here in Cordova. And I don't know if you're familiar with that program. No, I'm not. No. Okay. So think um, like mathletes or academic decathlon. Um, It's a quiz bowl style competition that is centered solely on the marine world, the marine realm. And so it's, I like to tell my high schoolers when I'm recruiting them, it's kind of like mean girls at the end of the movie when you've got the four against the four and they have their buzzers. Um, It's very much like that. It's an academic style Jeopardy buzzer competition, um, teams versus teams. The teams spend months from September to February studying all about the marine world. And I mean, this competition is exhaustive. If it happens anywhere near the ocean, let alone in the ocean, it's fair game. And so we cover topics from marine chemistry and biology, physical oceanography, all the way to um, anthropology and technology in the ocean literature even. And so we we spend a lot of time practicing that. And then they go to compete in their regional bowl. And so Alaska's regional bowl is the tsunami bowl. And that's um, all of the teams that are participating. And usually we have an in-person competition in Seward in February. And they go head to head on their knowledge. And tsunami bowl is unique in that it also requires these teams to research and write a 15-page paper ahead of time. Um, And then when they get there, they give a 15-minute oral presentation to their peers and a panel of judges. And so I I think it's just a really neat competition in that it's introducing a lot of topics of marine science, but it's also giving these students some really valuable world and life skills as far as research and um, presenting. So that's a fun one. And then I'm I'm not really answering your question, Victor, in that (laughs) I have so many favorites, but we have a lot of programs and I only picked three. And the third one is the discovery outreach that we do in where we take our remotely operated vehicle programs and we take them to other communities other than Cordova and run those. That ROV program looked really neat because they, the kids actually kind of build a little tiny ROV, which is pretty neat. So actually, could you tell me a bit more about that program? I would love to. And it's, um, you know, right at the top of my brain, we just got back from one of these trips to Nome, Alaska. The ROV program, ROV stands for Remotely Operated Vehicle. And the way our ROV program is set up is there's a kind of mock oil spill challenge. And so the way we frame it to the students is that they are kind of a design and engineering company. Their company has been asked or tasked by the Alieska Pipeline So that's the Trans-Alaska Pipeline that brings crude oil all the way down from the the slope to Valdez. And so they've been asked by the pipeline terminal to design and build a remotely operated vehicle to perform five tasks. And those five tasks are inspect birth infrastructure. And so what that means in our plain English is, can your ROV move? (laughs) really important. Um, The second one is, can your ROV take an underwater photograph? And so for that one, we we require the ROVs to be able to hover in the water column so that they're getting a still image. And so we, you know, kind of explain to them that they wouldn't be moving around while trying to take a selfie or it would be blurry. (laughs) Um, The third task is to navigate underwater obstacles. And so we actually sink hula hoops into the water column. And so they have to be able to fly their ROV through them and then back up out of the hula hoop. The fourth task, which I think is the hardest, is they have to attach an anchor chain. And what that looks like with the ROV is they have to then think about their ROV needs to be able to receive this hoop, this weighted hoop, and take it from the side of the pool to what we call a little underwater. It's almost like a cactus or a field goal. It has uprights. And their ROV needs to be able to drop that hoop off and then back away. And then the fifth task is to respond to an oil spill. And I'm doing air quotes because I don't want anyone to think that we're creating oil spills anywhere out in the the environment or in any pool situation. We actually use ping pong balls to be our kind of mock oil. And then they get a boom, which is a pool noodle. And they need to be able to attach that to their ROV to contain this oil 
quote unquote, that has been spilled. And so they get these tasks. And then what we give them is a bag of PVC pipes with different lengths of pipe, different joints, different shapes and sizes of everything. And then they get a motor box that is attached to three motors. They're basically bilge pump motors um, that you would find in a boat. And then their control box connects to a battery. And we just kind of say, go for it. And they then design and build this ROV. Then the most fun part is we put them to the put them up to the challenge, right? So we have an obstacle course set up either in a pool, if the community has a pool, but we've also used uh, mini inflatable pools. We've also used harbors, lagoons, any body of water, we'll put the ROVs in it. And then they get to, as a team, kind of fly their ROVs and and accomplish these tasks. Wow. Yeah, that's (laughs) such a cool, uh, how long is that program? Like, I imagine that must be at least half a day. Yeah, you know, it really depends on the the teacher and the community that we're working with. We we absolutely are flexible when we come into these communities and some teachers might be able to give us a whole day, in which case we'll take it, of course. Um, and other teachers might be might say, Well, I only have them for fifty minutes for three days and then we'll we'll work to fit in those parameters. So for example, we were just in Nome and we worked with two different teachers with two different groups of students. And so um, it was about an hour and a half for the build for each group and then an hour and a half for the pool portion or the challenge portion of the program. And so nice that it's got these like this real world link, but then also it's it's a really practical task and you can see the real world connections to it. The oil spill is now 40 years ago, no, 30 years ago. That's going to be ancient history for small kids at school. So how how relevant do you find that um, now? Like, do kids still see this as, as something that's relevant? Um, I think for, you know, for Cordova kids who have grown up here, they hear about the oil spill quite a lot, right? It is such a part of the history of this community and and one that we're we're still dealing with, as you mentioned in the introduction, the herring fishery never recovered, um, and the herring population has not recovered since 1993, the herring population crashed. And even though the oil itself didn't make it to Cordova, it actually went west, where, whereas we're east of that location, the economic brunt of that herring collapse was, was felt in Cordova. And so I think the Cordova students are very familiar with hearing about the oil spill. Um, and we, we do this ROV program with local sixth graders every year. So they've all done it and they, um, they get a whole unit of an, a whole oil spill unit. But I think a lot of the other communities that we travel to, they've maybe heard of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. It, it, I think it depends where they are in their curriculum, if they've talked about the spill itself. But they certainly, you know, whether they've heard of the spill or not, the the pipeline is still bringing oil down to Valdez and there are still tankers that are taking oil through Prince William Sound out in the Gulf and down to California to the refineries. And so it's it's still an issue and, and one, like you said, that real, real world application, not only in the fact that we have, you know, more ship passage along the coast of Alaska in some of these communities where an oil spill might be a future problem and a, a problem I hope we never see, but it, it is something to be aware about in these communities that um, have kind of ice routes opening up right now. But also in the the design, the build, the flying of an ROV, right? We have a lot more job opportunities for remotely controlled everything, I think. And, and I think a lot of students don't realize, like, oh, you could do this? Like, I could be flying an ROV for my job. I could be using a skid steer remotely for my job. Um, and I, th- that's why I love this program. It's just like the epitome of engineering and design. It brings in real world applications and you just, they have their hands on everything and they're building something for this task and then they get to see it put to work right away. Yeah. That's always such a reward when it's not when it's not an abstract, like maybe you could do this at home, you know, draw a picture and maybe you can do blah, blah, blah. When you actually get to build it and the kids actually get to see it work makes it such a different experience. Yeah. Yes. 
And I'm amazed, you know, I've been working here, like I said, for six years, I've probably run the ROV program 20, 30 times with different groups of students. And every single time there is a different shaped ROV or an ROV with motors in a different place. And just the creativity, the ingenuity that these, all of these students come up with just continues to impress me. Yeah. And of course, those engineering design skills are not only applicable to ROVs. It's to any engineering design kind of field, right? Anything where you're building or designing and problem solving, those are such applicable skills to everywhere. Yeah. Um, When you do encounter kids who are, maybe they don't quite see the relevance as much as the Cordova community. Are there any strategies you use to get them to see the, the relevance or is it present enough in the Alaska community that all you really need to do is talk them through it and then they get it? Are you specifically talking about like oil spill response or? Um, yeah, yeah. Or, or those environmental concerns. Like I have vague memories of doing an oil spill unit or activity, something about water pollution, but didn't feel immediately relevant. It was it was a very like distant abstract project. And I was a nature kid and I was kind of, I got that, oh, this is something that's important. But I could see that a lot of communities, a lot of kids m- might not see that as much because it's not as much a big part of their everyday life. So I'm wondering if you encounter any of that, maybe people who are like kids who are nearly moved to Alaska from somewhere else. Um, uh, or, do you, or do you get the sense that this is a problem that, that, that kids get because some problems are really big and abstract and it's difficult for kids to get why it really matters. But water pollution is something kids drink water all the time. So it might be a topic, I guess, that, that's a bit easier for kids to understand why they need to to care about it. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And, and you know, something that we're always thinking about in our programming too, like, did, were we successful in communicating the message that this is really important? Um, and so with the ROV program, you know, like I mentioned with the sixth graders here, when we might work with them for six separate days in this oil spill unit, we we start with what is oil and why is it important and kind of that relationship that as Alaskans we have with oil, right? It's it's another huge industry in, this, in our state and it is something um, we all rely on and it's it's happening, right? It is passing through Prince William Sound. And then we have such a strong connection with the Exxon Valdez oil spill specifically as part of our history. And then we also will do a, um, a lesson called oil spill in a pan. And so we do, again, mock oil. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a secret <laughs> that our, our really good crude oil is um, vegetable oil and cocoa powder. Um, and that makes the perfect uh, um, mock oil spill (laughs) of crude oil. Um, But we do a lesson where kids have to practice cleaning up oil and not only practice it with different household materials, but then they also look at the effects that that quote unquote crude oil has on natural materials like rocks and feathers and fur. And so I think when we're able to do that lesson in conjunction with the ROV program, it really does hit home that this this kind of disaster is something we never want to happen again, um, ever. You know, we we as a community are still dealing with it. We as a state, it's still an issue that we um, could face and that we are constantly working towards not facing, right? We The biggest thing we learned after the Exxon Valdez oil spill is we never want that to happen again. And so a lot of pre- prevention um, was put into place in a contingency plan. If we aren't able to do oil spill in a pan with the ROV program, we always start with an introduction about the oil spill and about the, the long-term effects that we're still seeing here in Prince William Sound. And I still do think it is it's a a difficult concept, like you said, kind of could seem very far away, very distant. But I think what's really unique with Alaskan communities and Alaskan students is a lot of them have a deep connection to where they live and not just the place, but also the ecosystems and the animals and the plants. Um, Most students participate in subsistence lifestyles here where they're hunting and they're foraging and they're um, 
really, really, really connected to their food sources and to the health of their ecosystems and therefore the health of their communities. And so I think there is this understanding that that an oil spill is a, a hugely negative impact on an ecosystem. And therefore, prevention is the key. And that's kind of why our ROVs are not aimed at really cleaning up a mass oil spill, but preventing it in the tasks that it does. Really interesting. You mentioned that a part of maybe why they are more easily than maybe some other kids able to to get the importance of it is the fact that they are a bit closer to where they get their food, a bit closer to that they're out in the environment around them a lot, a lot in their lives. So that leads me to uh, the the next question, which is maybe a more difficult one. What would you say is the program which you offer, which is most effective for fostering what I call pro-environmental attitudes? So for in terms of just caring about the natural environment, because that's something having grown up in the city and now living in a big city like London, I'm surrounded by, you know, very urban city kids and they just like don't like going outside because they're worried about getting dirty. So uh, that is a challenge for that I've seen that a lot of um, educators in in cities face is getting kids just to care about the natural environment. Yeah, that's it's such a good question. And and an interesting one here, like you said, there are a lot of students that are really active in being outside. And, but that doesn't always mean that they understand the environment or the ecosystem that they're, that they're outside in. And so it's, um, it can almost be interesting to kind of shift that thinking a little bit, you know, okay, yes, you might come out here to four wheel, but let's come out to look at the plants and the animals. You know, there, there are different ways to be outside and appreciate outside and nature, certainly. And we, there are, I think summer camps is a big one. Um, we There are two summer camp programs that we run. Um, one is called the Copper River Stewardship Program. And this is a massive partner program in that it's not just the Prince William Sound Science Center, but two other nonprofits, one in Cordova, the Copper River Watershed Project, and then one upriver in Kenny Lake. And when I say upriver, I mean up the Copper River. Um, we are part of the Copper River Watershed here. And the, that nonprofit is the Wrangell Institute for Science and Environment. And those three nonprofit organizations run the Copper River Stewardship Program. And what the aim there is to take students from Cordova or the lower end of the watershed and students from the Copper Basin, which is way bigger, <laughs> um, and students from that area of the watershed, and we bring them together for 10 days. And so we have these students, they're high schoolers, that are from the same watershed, but interact with that watershed in very different ways. For example, here in Cordova, our fishery is a commercial fishery. And so we have a lot of students whose families are commercial fishermen. Whereas in the Copper Basin upriver, you might have students that can only dip net for their salmon. They are not connected to a commercial fishery or their family might have a fish wheel, um, but they're hundreds of miles up this river and have a very different connection to it and to its resources. And so along throughout these 10 days, 10 or 12 days, we will spend time in both parts of the watershed. And so both of the groups of students get to have time being kind of the tour guides and the experts, and then also being the learners and they're learning from their peers. And throughout that, those 10 days, um, we meet with experts in the field and we um, do a lot of time to think on how we use our shared resources, how we use them differently, how we use them similarly, how we're also connected. Um, You know, the water comes everything, everything is downstream, right? So um, the the upper basin students, what they do upriver has an effect on us downriver. But what we do fishing, the salmon are moving upstream. So what we do down here also has an effect on them as well. And so there's this um, focus on the interconnectedness and the shared resources um, and how, 
how we are all connected, even though we live in very different communities. Um, not just with salmon too, right? We're from a temperate rainforest down here where they're in a boreal forest. And, and so it's pretty amazing to, to just see the, um, the students experience these different ecosystems where we have giant um, spruce trees and hemlock trees. And then we go up there and they have their black, uh, black spruce and just totally dry out, you know, us rainforest babies get really dry skin <laughs> and, <laughs> and then they come down here and they don't have their rubber ring gear and they're wondering why we live here and if we're wet all the time. And so it's really fun and it's, it's super educational, but you know, a lot of that, that program is to focus on the stewardship of our shared resource of the Copper River watershed. And then the second program I mentioned is um, called Delta Restoration Team, and, and we abbreviate that DRT or DIRT Camp. Um, and that brings uh, high schoolers together, not just from Cordova, but from all over the state of Alaska and all over the country. And so those high schoolers are really interested in spending some time in the Copper River Delta, and we focus solely on stewardship activities, and they're introduced to a number of um, careers in the field of wildlife biology, fisheries management, um, public recreation. They meet with a number of different partners, and then we, we work on real-time projects. So we've um, revegetated a stream bank for salmon habitat. We've revegetated Dusky Canada Goose nest islands. Um, we will decommission an illegal four-wheel trail um, and, you know, redirect traffic to a, a non-salmon stream crossing. And so that, that one also focuses on just getting kids outside and involved and learning all about a place from a number of different angles so that they can care about their place, their role in, in that community and that ecosystem and how they can carry that forward. It's so neat. That second program sounds also, it's so, um, it's another one of those very hands-on practical experiences where, you know, sometimes when you talk about ecology and ecosystems, again, you you read it in a book, you read it in a textbook, and then but when you see it in action, that must be such a different experience for those kids. And also one that's really rewarding to know that, you know, they've taken part in something and they've made a difference. They've, they've left a mark. Yeah, there's a quote from the very first time we held Del Delta Restoration Team. They journaled very extensively to kind of reflect on what they were seeing. And one of the quotes from that first cohort of students was after they had finished revegetating this dusky Canada nest island. And so what that is, is it's a floating platform out in, in the water. And long story, but in 1964, since we're talking about Alaskan disasters, there was an earthquake and the Copper River Delta actually uplifted. And so the dusky Canada goose nests here. And what happened is a lot of their nesting habitat was uplifted as well, or the surrounding areas were. And so other plants were able to move in and then trees were able to colonize as well. And so what was once their nice protected nesting habitat, predators were now more able to access their nests and avian predators as well now due to perches of trees. And so the Forest Service has been maintaining these nest islands and a number of our programs help revegetate them. So the student had just revegetated this island and, and they wrote in their journal that moment of stepping back and seeing what we had done and knowing that this would make a difference was incredible. And, and so I think you, you kind of nailed it with what you said is they, they, they really were hands, I mean, hands on, like hands in the dirt, digging up sweet gale, um, <laughs> moving around goose poop on the nest island for that fertilizer. You can't get more hands on than that. Nope. Nope. <laughs> It's interesting that both of those programs that you described, it brings together kids from kind of a broader community, brings them in, and then maybe swamps experiences. Um, do you think that aspect of bringing together like very different groups of people, like what do you think that adds to the this program? You described it in the first one where they actually, they get to change places in terms of who gets to be the expert, who gets to be the tour guide because they're talking about their patch. Are there any other benefits that you've seen from bringing together these big groups? Oh, absolutely. You know, like we were talking about with with our Sea Squirts program is, you know, just hearing 
what everyone has learned and just sharing not only past experiences and, and the fact that everyone's coming into it with a different perspective and different backgrounds, but also is then interpreting maybe what we're experiencing differently. And there's a lot of, of time for reflection and for discussion in all of our programs. And, and we all learn from each other. And I think if we were all from the same place and had the exact same shared ex- or the exact same experiences in our in our history, we wouldn't learn a lot, right? Or we would experience um, something new all in the same way. And when you bring students from different places, from different interests, um, from different cultures together, we all just learn so much more. Um, it's just a much more rich experience. And and I I should also note. Like I said, the, the stewardship program is, is a major partner program. Um, not only are our students different and have different goals and different aspects, but the the organizations that participate in these programs are also different and um, bring different backgrounds and different educators that have different styles. And so part of the success is just this kind of we're all different and we're all working together um, because not only are is it the nonprofits, but we also partner with the Forest Service. Um, so we're in the Chugach National Forest here in Cordova, and then also upriver with the Bureau of Land Management and the National Park Service as well. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to me today, Lauren. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks for coming on to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm sad that I missed you when you were here in person, but it was it was really nice to get to talk to you. And I could, like I said, I could have talked a lot more because we offer a lot and um, just feel really lucky to lead them and, and be a part of them. So. Yeah, thanks for having me. Another big thank you to Lauren from the Prince William Sound Science Center. I really appreciate taking the time to speak with the podcast about the amazing programming on offer at the center. I'm particularly inspired by the programs which explicitly bring together participants from different communities. As Lauren mentioned, it is so valuable for people to learn from others with different experiences, and it also feels really valuable to get to know other communities which are connected by these big natural systems. A particular problem we've seen this year with climate change is that it affects different communities in vastly different ways, and it can be really difficult to, one, see how our actions and choices affect other communities, and two, it's really difficult to empathize with people and communities you don't really know. Empathize, that is, in a way which will spur us to make sacrifices or changes in our own lives or communities in order to benefit others. The summer programs Lauren spoke about today seem like a really great way to put faces to these distant communities and turn strangers into friends. So I hope you've come away from this conversation as inspired as I have uh, to look for ways to bring together different communities and get to know more different ways of connecting with nature. To find out more about the Prince William Sound Science Centre and the range of programs which we only touched on today, check out their website. Links will be in the full show notes. And we didn't get to speak much about it today, but the center is also a research institution which has been monitoring species in the sound for decades. So check out the research pages on their website for tons of great information about the ecology of the region, species recovery after the spill, and how climate change is affecting the sound, among many, many other subjects. Thank you again to Lauren and the Prince William Sound Science Center. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Very last thing, because I, I know it's a an event that is coming up in the medium term future, but Iceworm Festival, I think that's your next festival coming up. Yes. <laughs> Please tell me about Iceworm Festival, because the mascot is hilarious and adorable. It's a little worm. 
what are iceworms? What is Iceworm Festival? And why should people go to Iceworm Festival? That is such a great question. We have a number of different festivals in our community. And, and um, we have a mass shorebird migration in which we celebrate that. We also have Salmon Jam where we celebrate, you know, kind of everything that sustains us, salmon and art. Um, We have Fungus Festival where we talk about our harvesting. And then we have this gem of Iceworm Festival where you're not the only one to be like, please tell me about this (laughs) Um, because it's, Honestly, it uh, we don't talk about iceworms a lot. They're a real a real animal um, that we we truly don't know a lot. And we, being the scientific community, there really is not a lot of information about iceworms out there. But we in Cordova can access some of our glaciers, and there are iceworms to be found. Um, so they are small, you know, only a couple inches long um, worms <laughs> that live in our glaciers. But iceworm festival. Um, is really just all about our community. It's kind of a, we've made it through the winter and we want to celebrate that. And we have these very amazing um, events during Iceworm Festival, like the survival suit race, where crazy people, myself included, um, we will practice getting in a survival suit. So if if you've never seen a survival suit, it's something, um, a really important life-saving piece of equipment that you would keep on a boat in a cold water situation. So everyone here has survival suits. They're kind of like a giant red Gumby (laughs) suit (laughs) um, made of neoprene, and they're quite hard to get into. And so this survival suit race is a team of four and you start on the dock and and reminder again, it's February in Alaska and you're racing to see who can get into their survival suit the fastest and not only get into it, but then you have to jump into our harbor and swim in your survival suit um, from the from the dock to a little floating kind of um, tent. And the time starts when the whistle blows and it ends when the last person on your team gets out of the water. Um, And uh, the best part about that is you can race for time or you can race for style. (laughs) And so some some funny skits that go along with the survival suit races. Um, But that's that's one of them. We have volleyball tournaments, uh, paper airplane throwing contests, chili cook off. Um, There's an ice worm parade where local organizations make floats and walk the street. And, And like I said, it's really just all about um, the community of Cordova coming together to, to celebrate. Um, there's a, there's a variety show with that's open to anybody in the community. Um, and it just, I think it really speaks to, to the community of Cordova itself. It's, it's all about just getting together, you know, having a potluck and, and relying on each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think it speaks a lot about the community that they, for this big fest, the mascot they chose is this tiny, a black wiggly creature that no one really knows anything about but you name the whole festival after it and that's that's pretty amazing yep it's very much like cordova where it's just like a little hidden gem we're a little mysterious you might not know a lot about us but we're really cool and really fun <laughs> <laughs> amazing 